Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited that you came across this message. The sermon you're about to listen to is from our series, Who is God? If you're joining us for the first time, I wanna be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. We have an enemy in this world. If you know that we have an enemy in this world, say amen. Amen. Not only do we have an enemy in this world, we know some things about him. Primarily, we know that he is a liar. As a matter of fact, when Jesus describes our enemy from his own lips in John chapter 8, here's the way he describes him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Our enemy is a deceiver. And one of the primary tools of his deception is to lie to us about the person and the character of God. For example... Our enemy would have us believe that God is a ruthless judge who demands perfection and hates pleasure. The enemy would have us believe that God is somehow a cosmic killjoy who is sitting in the heavens with a lightning bolt in his hands waiting for you to have the slightest mistake in your life so that he can just blast you. We buy into that sometimes. It shapes the way we see God. Some of you are here this morning with a great sense of guilt because you think somehow you've displeased this God. Some of us call on this God at times when we see people doing stuff we don't like. Get them, God. Another lie the enemy tells us about God is that God is the cosmic CEO in the universe. That he's too big for my problems and he's too busy for my pain. God's forgotten about you. Any enemy ever whispered that lie to you? Maybe you're in a circumstance right now that Pastor Edward prayed about earlier, Scott sang about. You're in one of those fiery trials and you think somehow God has forgotten about you. God's too big to care about what you're going through. The enemy lies and tells us some other things that aren't true about God. He teaches us and whispers to us that God is just a genie in a bottle who exists to make you happy and to meet your needs. And if you'll just rub him the right way, matter of fact, this is a very popular preaching by a a lot of preachers in America, that God exists to make you healthy and wealthy and wise. And if you don't have what you want, if you'll just treat God the right way, then he'll give you whatever your heart's desire is. 
It's unfortunate that all the characters in the Bible didn't know that that God existed. (laughs) He would lie to us and have us believe that God is just an old man upstairs that wants everybody to be happy and get along. Probably the chief of all of his lies is that God is a man like us. He's a person like us. And he has limitations like we do. One of the reasons sometimes we have such difficulty relating to God is we think God's like us. Because I know if I was God, I'd be done with me. Right? When we begin to believe the lies of the enemy about God, we are giving our hearts over to the sin of idolatry. Let me unpack that for you. A.W. Tozier is one of my favorite Christian writers and and preachers of days gone by. I love to read his books. If you've been a part of Hope for any length of time at all, you've heard me quote before A.W. Tozier. One of my favorite, favorite of all of his books is a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If you've never read it, strongly encourage you to get it. It's a little bitty thin paperback book. You can get it online for next to nothing. It's an unbelievable book because it just walks through the glory and the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty of God. Listen to what he said in that book in the introduction. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is and substitutes for the true God one made after our own likeness. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. You see, the enemy doesn't care if he gets you addicted to everything the streets has to offer or simply piously worshiping a false god of your own making. As long as you're not emotionally and passionately and volitionally worshiping the true God of the Bible, he's got you right where he wants you. Well, how do we know the truth about God. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, taught me that the way to know the truth about God is to expose the lies of the enemy to the truth of God and then simply by faith believe the truth. And when it comes to the truth about God, there's maybe no better place in all the Bible to turn to understand who God is than the one place in Scripture where somebody literally asks God, God, who are you? Show me who you are. And God from his own lips answers that question, and God describes himself. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 34. If you're visiting with us this weekend, we for a number of weeks and now several weeks more are in the middle of a series that we've simply entitled, Who is God? Who is God? And we're looking at a section of Scripture where Moses, this hero of the faith in the Old Testament, Moses approaches God and has the audacity to say to God, God, who are you? Would you reveal yourself? Would you make yourself known to me? God, would you show me your glory? And God surprisingly answers him by doing just that. God appears to Moses, and out of his own mouth, God gives a description of who he is. God tells Moses who he is. So in Exodus 34, we're going to pick it up in verse number 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. 
We said it a few weeks ago, but that word proclaimed is a word that means to invite. It's a, it's a word that is a relational word. God is inviting Moses into an intimate understanding of who he is. And here's what he proclaimed. He proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. That was week one. We focused on the name of God, the divine name. Then last weekend, a God merciful and gracious. Aren't you thankful that God is a God of mercy and grace? Aren't you thankful that he didn't start with judgment and righteousness right out of the gate? No, when God said, let me tell you who I am. I'm a God of mercy and I'm a God of grace. And here's the phrase we're going to focus on this weekend. Slow to anger. That's a good place for everybody to say amen, right? Slow to anger. We'll get here next weekend. Abounding in loving kindness. In steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. uh, To the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worship. Man, that's our prayer. We're going to finish this in a few weeks, and we're going to finish on this verse. And man, my prayer is that as we just look at the glory and the majesty and the grandeur of the character and the person of God, that our response collectively as a people will be to bow our heads and worship God. Man, we need a fresh vision of the glory of God. We're going to focus this weekend on just that phrase, slow to anger. The problem is when we hear the phrase slow to anger, we we have a hard time even understanding what it means because we hear it through our own experience with anger. But God's anger is not like our anger. Let me help you understand that. I want to give you a couple of definitions. First of all, here's a a textbook definition right out of Macmillan's Dictionary for the word anger. See if this resonates with you. Anger is the strong feeling you get. Anybody with me so far? Amen? Take a deep breath. Maybe you got angry on the way to church this morning, right? And you're sitting here simmering in the strong feeling this morning. The strong feeling you get. I love this part. When you think, right? Throw facts out the window. The strong feeling you get when you think somebody has treated you badly or unfairly. You know what I'm talking about, right? The emotion begins to stir. The steam begins to rise. The nostrils begin to flare. Smoke begins to come out of the ears. Why? Because they've treated me unfairly. It makes you want to hurt them or shout at them. Can I be honest? I think that's the most descriptive, spot-on definition of anger I've ever read. (laughs) Now, maybe you're way more spiritual than me, and maybe anger is not anything that you've ever struggled with. But I'm telling you, if anger has ever been a part of your life, that definition is like somebody has been reading my email. 
started to get angry reading the definition. <laughs> it was like two in my business. Like this ain't even the Bible and I was under conviction. Here's the truth. Anger has been a real part of my life that God has had to do an ongoing work of sanctification. And now listen, I know you hear me say that and you find that extremely hard to believe. You look up here at me on this stage and you think, man, he's just the nicest, the sweetest. My wife's sitting right over here and I don't want her to amen at all during this section. (laughs) Because everything in her is wanting to amen, but if she does, I'm gonna have a strong feeling (laughs) arise in me. It's the truth. (laughs) Listen. We all, whether you know this or not, we all have a flesh that we have to deal with. Now, not all of us have the same propensities in our flesh. Some of us have a greater propensity to some sins than other sins. That's why you look at some people and go, man, how do you struggle with that? Because you don't struggle with that. That's because maybe your flesh doesn't have a propensity in that direction. But their flesh may be greatly proposed to lean into that. And so all of us have a flesh and we're a work in progress where God is at work in us conforming us to the image of Jesus. Now, for me, anger was a big part of my flesh propensity. Like when I was a kid, I'm embarrassed to tell you how many sporting events that I played in as a child where I was literally kicked out of the game. (laughs) You're never going to look at me the same again. I'm telling you, double technical foul, personal foul, son, you're done, go to the lockers. Thrown out, kicked out, 9, 10, 11 years old, out of the game. I wish I could tell you I grew out of it as a child. I was kicked out of games in college and intramural sports. I broke a guy's leg playing flag football, not even supposed to have contact. But he treated me badly. I wish I could tell you that it went away in college. As a pastor, I had to stop playing competitive sports publicly so not to tarnish and damage the name of Jesus in the community. It wasn't just in sports. My wife's sitting here. Man, this is honest truth. In our first two years of marriage, she packed her stuff up three times to go. I'm telling you the truth. It was, and listen, here's the bad part. For a long time in my life, I excused it because it's in my family. Like I come from a long line of hot-tempered people. So I said, hey, it's just who I am. Listen, yes, it's who I am in my flesh, but it's not who I am in Christ. And until we begin to lay it at the feet of Jesus and let him begin to deal with it, it's never going to get better. Listen, it spilled into my work relationships and we planted hope. The saying around hope in the early days was, listen, the first response you get from Vance won't be his last response, which meant he's going to get upset, he's going to apologize, and he's going to come back. I hurt people. I wounded people. And listen, I'm not standing here today telling you I got it licked. But here's what I am telling you. I may not be yet all the man I'm supposed to be, but thank God I'm not the man I used to be. You see... All of us are in a process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. And here's the good news. Listen, God will finish what he started in you. Don't give up hope. He promised he'll finish it. 
But that's our anger. You see, our anger is emotional. It's a strong feeling. Our anger is not just emotional. Our anger is subjective. It's not based in any real fact. It's just based on how we feel. It's, it's our perspective. It's our limited understanding of the situation. And we respond in emotion, and our anger is vengeful, meaning this. I want them to hurt because I hurt. Here's the reality. Hurt people hurt people. Now, because we believe the lie of the enemy, we think God's angry like this. Some of you think because of something you did this week, there's a strong feeling in God that wants something bad to happen to you because you disappointed him. Some of you even come to church trying to throw some pixie dust on that God, hoping that it can somehow appease his anger. Let me give you another definition. This is God's anger. God's anger is his resolute opposition towards anything that threatens his righteous design for the creation that he loves. That's very different than our anger. It's not emotional at all. It's the posture of his will. God is opposed to that which is unholy. God is opposed to that which is evil. Why? Because God is holy. Because God is holy by his nature. Who he is is in opposition to that which is unholy and evil. But not only is God's anger not emotional, it's the posture of his will. God's anger is not subjective. It is very objective. It's measured against his righteous design. Who's the standard? He is. When it deviates from God's design, it provokes the heart of God to respond to that in anger. But don't miss this. His anger is not vengeful. His anger is born out of love. You see, what inspires, what provokes God to anger is he loves us too much to leave us there because sin is going to destroy and devastate that which God has designed for us. That's the anger of God. You see, he wants what's best. And he knows the choice that you and I are making deviates from that. And it's only going to bring devastation and destruction into our lives. And so God responds to that in righteous anger. So let me ask a couple of questions, and then we're going to wrap this up. Two questions. Number one, what does it not mean that God is slow to anger? Before we talk about what it means, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. First of all, it does not mean that God is a pushover. Some people hear this, that God is slow to anger, and they think that God is some pushover. I have four children. If you were to ask any of my four children, did you ever do anything to make your dad angry, you would get a unanimous yes. It also spilled into my parenting. I've had to say I'm sorry as a dad more times than I can count. But now I have two grandchildren, and they can't do anything to make me mad. <laughs> it makes my kids angry, <laughs> but they're perfect, right? I mean, 
Grandparenting is all of the grand and none of the parenting. It's awesome. Some people think that God views us as a doting grandfather. And because of that, God could never get angry with us. The fact that the Bible says God is slow to anger does not mean that he's a pushover. Secondly, it does not mean that God cannot get angry. Some would say, of course God is slow to anger because being angry is a sin, and God cannot sin, so therefore God cannot get angry. Now, part of that's true. There's a type of anger that is sinful. That's the kind of anger that is our anger, our emotional response to a subjective moment that is vengeful towards someone else. And Paul writes about that anger in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Look what he said. Paul said, let all bitterness and wrath, there it is, and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. There's no place in the life of a Christian for this unrighteous anger that is born out of emotion that longs to hurt other people. But in the same chapter, listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin, meaning there is an anger that's not sinful. You say, what's the difference? Let me give it to you in a definition. Here's unrighteous anger. Unrighteous unrighteous anger is our emotional, out-of-control anger at the things that aren't the way I want them to be. You didn't treat me the way I want to be treated. You didn't value time the way I wanted you to value time. You didn't make the decision I wanted you to make. So I get out of control, emotional, angry. Let me show you righteous anger. Righteous anger is Holy Spirit-controlled anger at the things that aren't the way God designed them to be. You say that there's a difference in my emotional out-of-control response when I don't get what I want versus a righteous indignation when something that is in society, in the world, in my life that is not the way God designed it to be. God's anger, hear me, is always righteous anger. His anger is always provoked anger in response to sin and evil in the world. Why is that? Because sin and evil threaten his divine design and bring pain and suffering. And he loves us too much to leave us there. So he's provoked to respond in anger to remove that from our lives. Let me give you a clarifying statement that I wrote about this. Look at this. Sin angers the heart of God, not because of his disappointment in me, but because of sin's devastation of his loving plan for me. You hear that? Here's what that means. God's anger is not personal. God's anger is purposeful. His anger is not towards you. His anger is towards sin and unrighteousness and unholiness that is bringing about devastating consequences in your life. And so God responds to that in righteous anger. So it doesn't mean God's a pushover. It doesn't mean he cannot get angry. Number three, it doesn't mean that he never gets angry. Maybe you're thinking, well, I know God's not a pushover, and I know that he can get angry, but I don't think God ever would get angry because what does the Bible say? The Bible says God is love. God is love, and God is good. But his love and his goodness are simply expressions of his holiness. You see, when God gets angry, it's because he is good. 
Think about it. How good or loving could God be if he's not angered by evil and injustice? His anger is an expression of his goodness. His anger is an expression of his love. He can get angry, and he does get angry. And with that foundation, I want to read two passages of Scripture that I want you to just listen to. I'm going to put them up here on the screen. And as I read these passages of Scripture, they, could cause all, they should cause all of us to pause and fear the Lord. I'm about to read two sections of Scripture, and I promise you neither one of them are sections of Scripture you've ever chosen for your memory verse. You don't put these on your phone as the gracious reminder of who God is. First one's in Isaiah chapter 5. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He stretched out his hand against them and he struck them. And the mountains quaked. And their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. It's not a warm, fuzzy, popular view of God. The second one's in Psalm 18. Then the earth reeled. And rocked. And the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because why? He was angry. Don't tell me God can't get angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. The channels of the seas were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. anger of God against sin and evil. John Stott said it this way, the anger of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Listen, if we are not careful we begin to believe the lies of the enemy about God and we become flippant and casual in our attitude about this holy, majestic, glorious, sovereign God. But here's the good news that he said to Moses. I am slow to anger. Aren't you glad God is not like us? He is slow to 
were he not slow to anger, none of us would be sitting here this morning. Were he not slow to anger, there would be but one left, and that would be he himself. He's slow. So what does it mean that God is slow to anger? I'll give you three statements. The phrase slow to anger, it's two Hebrew words. The first one, slow, is a word that means long. It's literally what it means. Long. Slow to anger. It means that our God is Long-suffering. It tells us that God doesn't have a quick trigger. Three statements. Number one, God is always patient towards us. Like Moses, that ought to make us bow our head quickly and worship God is patient. He's always. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago about the name of God, that it speaks to the eternal reality that he always is who he is, meaning this. This morning as we sit here in worship, he is as patient towards you today as he has ever been, and he is as patient towards you as he ever will be. Why? Because God is always God. He's patient. Why would God be so patient? If we're going to be honest, and listen, church is a good place to be honest. If we're going to be honest today, we would all admit that we've blown it more times than we've gotten it right spiritually. Anybody else can identify with that? Any amens in the house? I've gotten it wrong more than I've gotten it right. If I were God, I'd be done with me. If I were God, I'd say enough. If I were God, I'd say I've had it with you. We've had this conversation over and over and over again. But listen, that's not who God is. He's, listen, slow to anger is not what he does. Slow to anger is who he is. You see, what he does simply flows out of who he is. God is patient towards us. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. If you hadn't read it, I've recommended it three times now. You need to get it. It's powerful. Listen to what he said in that book about this verse. He writes one chapter on the verses that we're preaching from. The Lord doesn't have his finger on the trigger. <laughs> Amen. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his ire. Unlike us who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest Number two, God is always patient toward us because he loves us. 
in Exodus 34, he's describing who he is. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Notice, slow to anger is couched in between merciful and gracious. And the next phrase we're getting to next weekend, abounding in steadfast love. Abounding. It's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, hesed. It'll get unpacked for you next weekend. It's so powerful. It's so rich. It's so deep. He's got, he's slow to anger. But listen, love is just spilling out. His faithfulness, his grace, his mercy just spilling out. Let me read you a verse out of 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter's writing about this idea of God's patience. This is what he says. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. We can't even wrap our minds around that. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. It's been so long, oh Lord. What do you mean? It's just been a day. He's not slow as some count slowness but is patient toward you. This next phrase, wow. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I love this word. Say this word out loud. Wishing. It's a word in the New Testament, Greek language, that doesn't speak about the will of God as much as it speaks about the heart of God. Here's what that means. It is the desire of God that no one perish. It is the desire of God. God, why don't you send judgment? God, why don't you move? Here's why. Because God has set his heart on us. And God, in patience, is waiting on us to repent, to turn from our sin, and to run to Jesus. God is patient with us because he loves us. You know why God doesn't give up on you? Because he loves you. And you cannot send yourself outside of the scope of his love. But I want to land this plane with a heavy thought. Here it is. There is a limit to the patience of God. Now, maybe you didn't think that's where we were going to finish today. But I'm not honest to the text and to the book. I don't tell you this. There's a limit to the patience of God. You say, whoa, 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 what do you mean? Well, I mean two things. Number one, there's a limit to God's patience when it comes to his saving grace. You see, the whole story of the Bible is that God created you and he created me for one reason. To know him, to love him, and to be known and loved by him. God made us for himself. But here's the story of the Bible. As human beings, we sinned against God. We chose to turn away from God. We chose to do our own thing. We rejected God's plan, God's purpose, and we've all sinned against God. Anybody in the room say you haven't? You just lied. You're in the camp now, right? We've all sinned against God. But he loves us anyway. 
us and he loves us so much that even though there was nothing we could do to earn our way back into a, a good standing with him, God did for us what we couldn't do on our own. He sent his only son, Jesus. God became a man. And Jesus did what you and I couldn't do. He lived a sinless life. And then he offered that body to the Father on the cross as a substitute for you and for me. And on the cross, Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin, all of the wickedness of my heart, every lustful thought, every angry word. Jesus took it on the cross. And on the cross, God the Father poured out all of his anger and all of his justice and all of his wrath on Jesus in my place. And Jesus died. he did not stay dead the father accepted his sacrifice for our sin raised him from the dead and now the story of the Bible is that you and I can realize the truth of the gospel we can turn from our sin we can put our faith in Jesus and all of our sin is forgiven and listen 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 as long as there's breath in your body you can run to Jesus and you can find forgiveness and you can find healing and you can find salvation. But Hebrews chapter 9 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. There's a limit to the patience of God. If you leave this life without turning to Jesus, on the other side of death you will not find a merciful gracious patient God you will find the judge sitting on the throne in all righteousness and holiness and truth and because you would not accept the provision of his son you will receive the wrath of God against sin for all eternity Listen, I'm not trying to be some hellfire and brimstone, scare you into making a decision kind of preacher. But listen, I don't love you if I don't tell you the truth. You come sit in here week after week after week thinking you got week after week after week after week to think about this. And you don't know that this may be your last time you ever hear the gospel. This may be the last service you ever sit in. This may be the last sermon that you ever hear. And I'm telling you, there's a limit to the patience of God. After death is judgment. You either accept his judgment in Christ on the cross or you stand before him condemned in judgment for your own sins. There's a limit. The patience of God as it pertains to his saving grace, but then finally there's a limit to the patience of God as it pertains to his sanctifying grace. You say, what do you mean? Let me read you a verse of scripture out of Romans chapter 2. Paul says, do, do, do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God being patient with you as his child, as a Christian, is not a license for you to just live however you want to live. It's the kindness of God that should woo us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that should break our hearts. Listen, it's not the, I love it. It's not the anger of God that brings repentance in this. He said, man, the kindness, the patience of God is designed to woo us back to the Father. 
If you're a Christian today and you are intentionally and willfully walking outside of the boundaries of God's design for your life, God is patient with you. But listen, in his anger, he will respond. Let me show it to you. Galatians. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit eternal life. What does that mean? Here's what it means. God loves you too much to leave you where you are. If you continue to walk outside the parameters of his design for your life, there's a limit where God will say, okay, you want that? I'll let you feel what that means to want that. Not because he's angry with you, because he loves you. And he hates sin. And he'll allow you to experience the consequences of your own decisions. The Bible term for it is he will give them over. It says it over and over again in the news. He'll give them over. And in doing so, what happens? It brings a brokenness that woos us back to intimacy with him. Listen, he's patient. He doesn't want to go there. But listen to me, child of God, he will. Don't be deceived. In the Greek language, you can literally be translated, don't be stupid. I'm serious. Don't be stupid. Don't you think for a second you know something everybody else doesn't know. This is God we're talking about. This is God. Here's what that ought to do to every Christian in this room. Every Christian in this room. You need to understand, God is not a God with a lightning bolt ready to blast your life away, but he's a God who loves you too much to leave you in your sin. He will, in anger, give you over to the consequences of that to woo you back to himself if that's what it takes because he loves you that much. Think about it, mom, dad. How many times did you do do stuff that was unpleasant in the lives of your children when you saw them headed down a path you knew was going to bring destruction? And you love them too much to leave them there. So you did what was necessary, not in anger at them, but love for them. Brought difficult circumstances to woo them back to the right path. Listen, if we'll do that as fallen, sinful, broken parents, how much more a holy, loving, righteous God. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, God, that you would have your way in this moment. Lord, there are people in this room that do not know Jesus. And I pray today they would not spend another minute on credit in your patience but God they would run to Jesus today to be saved Lord there are Christians in this room who are choosing to live outside of your design and abusing your your kindness and your patience towards them and Lord I confess there have been moments in my life where I found myself in that very same situation Lord total transparency I feel like I find myself there a lot Lord, I pray we'd be quick to run to you today and repent. To turn away from our sin, to receive the kindness and the patience of God and not the consequences of our actions. 
just a moment. We're going to stand and sing a song of worship. We're going to have pastors here at the front. It's an opportunity for us to respond to what we've heard from God today. These pastors are going to join me here. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, listen. When we stand and begin to sing, I want you to do one thing and one thing. I want you to run to one of these pastors and just say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody open a Bible and show you how you can be saved today. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can leave here knowing that your eternity is secure. You can leave here knowing that on the other side of death, there's not a judge, but there's an eternity with Jesus. Christian there's stuff in your life that you know is outside of God's design and you need to make a fresh surrender to Jesus this altar is going to be open up here you can just come and get in one of these altars and just kneel down before the Lord and just cry out to him make a fresh surrender probably ought to be a lot of us do that today and finally if there's something in your life one of those trials we talked about earlier your job your health your family your relationships our pastors are here we'd love to pray for you you can come to one of our pastors we'll pray for you Listen, because God is slow to anger, we ought to be quick to worship. We're about to worship God because he's slow to anger.